Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, so you guys, this is just definitely not the jungle studio that we're in. No. This is an august environment. It looks like a courtroom, but I promise we're not on trial. God, I hope not. (laughs) No, Bob Mueller has not (laughs) indicted us. Ben, would you like to tell everyone where we are? We are at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore in front of a live audience. Thanks to... Thanks to our special guest this week, Danielle Zatron, who is here on the, the, the panel with us. Now, before I begin, I want to ask, there's a room full of law students here, how many of you have been asked to join the president's legal team this week? Okay, the entire <laughs> audience raised their hands. You can't see this at home. How many of you said no to the president? Yeah, all the hands are still up. So, okay. Um, but uh, yes, we're going to see what happens here on our first On the Road show. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the All the President's Lawyers edition. I'm Shane Harris, Pro Se Reporter. Uh, We are here uh, in this august chamber at the University of Maryland on the road for this week's show. We really just had to get out of Washington uh, because it's been really, it's been actually a slow week. I have to say this, it actually has felt like a slow news week for me, which tells you that my entire sense of what news is like has been completely warped in the past year. Yeah, so I walked in on Monday and I said to Quinta, it's going to be a slow week. And she asked why, and I said, it's going to be a slow week because the president doesn't have lawyers and he is making uh, noises about actually sitting for an interview with Bob Mueller. So if you were Bob Mueller and you had something to drop, maybe you would hold it while that negotiation was ongoing. And so it is now Wednesday. And it has in fact been a slow week. So I'm not, I don't know if I got it right for the right reason, but so far, I feel like you're just like tempting the gods and somebody's going to get indicted while we're sitting here recording this Seriously, podcast. and I'd just like to say the notion that 48 hours of relative quiet and relative lack of scandal qualifying as a slow week, I think you're right, Shane. Our <laughs> sense of time and, and importance is completely this, distorted. This is the world we live in. But we're very glad to be here. I'm here with my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Ben Wittes, as always, and our special guest, Danielle Zitron. Thank you very much for having us here. It's great to have you guys. And I do feel like we're on trial, and our judge and jury is all here to come see us. But you guys are great for coming out. You should probably be in class somewhere you know, taking advantage of the education you're paying for, but you came here to listen to our podcast. So we're so excited. Uh, on the podcast this week, the president's legal team, it's a mess. Just like Goldilocks in search of porridge, the president can't seem to find the lawyer who's just right. We're going to talk about that. The U.S. expels Russian diplomats, but Trump bye continues bye. to... What? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's <laughs> Vidanya. <laughs> we can just beat Paka. that joke into the ground. <laughs> uh, the U.S. expels Russian diplomats, but Trump continues to hold his fire against President Vladimir Putin, and Mark Zuckerberg prepares to testify before Congress over Facebook's role in Russian election interference. Like I said, slow news week. Um, let's talk about the president's legal team, which feels like it's sort of like dwindling down to like the final people on the island. Like maybe that is actually the way to like one of them is going to get to Rose and it's not going to be John Dowd, right? So it's uh, Jay Sekulow. <laughs> it's going to be Jay Sekulow who's going to outlive them all. Uh, but obviously we saw the departure uh, of John Dowd, who was the president's uh, lead lawyer for the Russia investigation, the Mueller probe. Uh, there was news that Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tenzing, who are actual lawyers, right, but they're on TV a lot. But I called them TV lawyers in the office, but they're kind of like a little bit more than TV lawyers, right? They, at least they used to be. Okay, they, at least they used to be. They were apparently going to come on, but then there was some conflict of interest, and also apparently Donald Trump didn't like the way Victoria Tenzing dressed. So and- they said they looked shabby, so they're out. 
Okay, so they're down. Uh, Ted Olson was asked to be uh, a part of the legal team, and you could hear him laughing from across Washington. <laughs> so that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and now we learn also that John Dowd, at some point, according to the New York Times reporting that just came out today, was actually offering pardons uh, to people, uh, Mike Flynn and And, and Dan Manafort. Webb also said no. And Dan uh, Webb said no. Yeah, so, I can't keep track of so all of them. Like, and we know that everybody in the room turned them we down. We know a whole lot of super lawyers said uh, no thanks. Okay, so Ben, let me ask this question to you. Uh, it, it probably well, let's let's run through the reasons quick, briefly, why it is that you think that these individuals are passing on the opportunity to represent the president of the United States, which, in any matter whether you support the president or not, could potentially be a very attractive thing for a lawyer to take on. Uh, and, and give us your kind of initial take on what we should read by the fact that so many people are uh, both. Uh, uh, un unwilling to serve the president, but also he can't quite seem to settle on who it is that he wants. Well, and also they're willing to say very publicly that they are yes. unwilling to serve the president. Well, so I, th I think that that's a function of the fact that the White House keeps leaking their names. You know, so once it, if you happen to be Ted Olson and the White House happens to say, oh, we're, we're, we've asked Ted Olson to join the president's legal team, then you have to answer the question of whether you're, whether you're going to do it. Look, I think it's a really, uh, it, it's a three-pronged and ultimately simple uh, reason. Number one, um, the president doesn't follow legal advice. He is an uncontrollable actor, uh, and it's very difficult to, um, to, defend somebody who will not cooperate with his own defense. Uh, number two, uh, and this is, um, uh, you know, clearly a problem for his current lawyers, uh, he actually has very strong strategic views about his own defense and how to conduct it, and they are not views that professional counsel would tend to share. So uh, if you were professional counsel representing the president, I think the last thing that you would want him to do is uh, tweet attacks on the prosecutors or uh, volunteer to waltz into uh, uh, an interview with them uh, or to make recurrent uh, threats on the deputy attorney general or the attorney general the deputy attorney general in this case being the person who is acting attorney general for purposes of supervising this investigation. Uh, and then the third element, which I think is uh, probably subtextually important for a lot of these people, is that you have no basis for confidence that uh, you can get a handle on the information that you need in order to conduct a serious defense. Uh, the, the, the client himself is not uh, uh, somebody who you can ask a question and get a, a, a reasonable answer. The universe of information is not necessarily available to you. And by the way, all of the other actors are uh, too busy stabbing each other in the back uh, to uh, be cooperative with any efforts that you might have to represent them. And so I uh, represent your client. And so I, I think the, for just the look of it, it is an unmanageable situation. And, um, and so why would you get involved in it simply in order to fail at it? Yeah, I actually think your final point, Ben, is in some ways um, worth dwelling on because, you know, the backstabbing, the sort of Game of Thrones atmosphere, which uh, permeates the entire White House and everybody associated with it, the multiple factions in and around the president, um, are such that uh, you can't count on the president's own staff to be serving the president's interests. And so it, it's very difficult to imagine how uh, how a lead counsel for the president could have a team that is that that would reliably help him or her defend the president, even were the client um, amenable to taking your advice, even were the client a reliable truth teller. And as you noted, both of those are questionable premises. So here, I mean, here's a question: Are there any lawyers in Game of Thrones? <laughs> 
but very I, unsure. I, some people are shaking their heads. I, I, I think there's a reason why there aren't, right? Because if, if that, they killed them all in the in the first scene. Well, if, if they were if, the first if, against the wall. If yeah. that's right, if that's the environment, uh, legal defense is not really a very effective thing, right? And and this is not a a, a White House that is. That the atmosphere is conditioned by things like legal compliance. Danielle, the president's own lawyers have made no uh, secret of the fact that one reason they do not want him to sit down for an interview with Bob Mueller is they do not believe that he will tell the truth. They 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 are pretty explicit in their fear that within a few minutes of an interview he will say something that is factually untrue or he will get into some kind of combat with the people interviewing him and and, and you know essentially set his own perjury trap. I mean, if you were a lawyer with a client like that, I mean, I can understand why many people would run from a client like that, but eventually let's assume that he settles on somebody. How does that person begin to try and corral a client like that? And is it just a matter of telling him, you know, the truth as you see it and hoping he doesn't fire you and he listens to you? I mean, how do you even approach someone like this who, like, clearly thinks that he's probably his own best counsel? Right, which is entirely the problem, right? Um, and lawyers have an ethical obligation to not put someone uh, in a, a, a attesting situation, right? They they can't suborn perjury as officers of the court. So I don't know how you corral someone. Uh, it, it seems like an impo- I feel like I saw um, super lawyer Renee Hutchins in the audience nodding madly about how the, the notion of a difficult lawyer, you know, difficult client. Um, he seems to me to be par excellence, like sui generis in the most ter- terrible client that could even jeopardize your own license as a practicing attorney. So, I mean, in other words, putting him in front of Mueller, if you have reason to believe that he's jeopardizing himself because of perjury, like you're essentially committing a form of malpractice by doing so? Right, or violating state uh, professional responsibility laws. So how does that work in practice? If you... As as his counsel, if you say to him, look, I don't think you should testify. I advise you against it. It's a bad idea. And he does it anyway. Are you off the hook, ethically speaking? Um, you know, that I'm not sure about, though, you know, I think the idea that you're going to put them on the stand, if you know full well, they're going to lie, it could inevitably have blowback for your sort of your obligations as an officer of the court. Ben, what do you think are the, I mean, I'm curious about the implications for the office of the presidency, not solely the president when it comes to the kinds of jeopardy that we're talking about, potentially him putting himself in. You know, I've seen some people on on social media kind of gleefully tweeting things like, oh, please, please represent yourself, please, because they sort of, you know, they're obviously they're they're rooting for the the individual, the president, to fail in that case. But what are the sort of um, systemic or institutional jeopardies uh, that are in play here, do you think? Well, so they're pretty substantial. Um, one is um, that the ability of the presidency to resist an investigation that may be very intrusive uh, gets diminished to the extent that the presidency as an institution legally does not resist um, uh such an investigation. Now, in this case, um, most people who, you know, believe in the rule of law are pretty sympathetic to the investigation. But you could imagine setting all kinds of precedents that would make it uh, very difficult for a president in a much more sympathetic situation facing a much more malevolent investigation to resist. Um, and you know, there are these privileges that you associate with the presidency, the most prominent and famous of which, of course, is executive privilege. But there are other arguments that are available to the president that aren't available to other litigants um, or other people who are going to be called in front of an investigation. For example, if Bob Mueller wants to talk to anybody but Donald Trump, there isn't really a protracted negotiation about it. He sends a request to talk to you, and if you don't show up uh, voluntarily, he sends a subpoena, and then the court orders you to show up, and that's the end of it. And that has not happened here, and that's a reflection of the relative, uh, uh, both the potential power of the presidency institutionally to litigate something like this, and the fact that it is an open question whether he can be compelled to do it. It's also a reflection of a certain 
respect that the office of the special counsel has for the sort of dignitary qualities of, of the presidency. And, you know, you can blow through those, that latter point as well as the former point, by the way. Once you establish that the president is amenable to a subpoena for testimony, you never have to litigate that question again, right? And, but, I think the more substantial question is the dignitary question. Once you, once you establish as an investigation that president's really no different from anybody else, and if he doesn't come when you snap your fingers, you send a subpoena, uh, that's a big, you know, the president potentially has information to give in a lot of investigations. And, you know, the idea that you would, that you would normalize that is not without negative consequences for the presidency quite beyond uh, Donald Trump. What are the chances that because people of the caliber and the experience of Ted Olson, um, <clears throat> Dan Webb, others who would be the obvious go-to people here uh, will probably turn him down, what are the chances that the president ends up being represented by somebody who, at least on the surface, just seems incredibly out of his or her depth for something like this. I mean, is that, is that what we're driving towards? It's 100% chance. But that's and where we, we started we, with Kazowitz. Exactly. We know that. So, so let's, let's go through the people who have represented the president here. Uh, remember, let's like hear it from Mark Kasowitz, right? Cause this is a, this is a <laughs> special individual. Give it up. Give it up Mark. for Mark Kasowitz. Yeah. You remember him. Um, <laughs> I would say criminal and threat, you know, in making a threat to yeah. the person via email. I, I talked to ProPublica about how that easily could have been understood as a true threat punishable by law and prescribable within the confines of the First right. Amendment. So bad Mark Kasowitz. Very bad Mark Kasowitz. And Mark Kasowitz is still uh, advising the president kind of informally, right? Then there's uh, uh, Michael Cohen. Now, Michael Cohen, I can't tell if, like, being a bag man is normally <laughs> encompassed in lawyering. Um, but we know of at least two cases where he has literally carried money uh, to pay off people in exchange uh, for, for non-disclosure agreements. Uh, um, and I'm just saying, don't be too surprised if there are more of those cases. It's not like in his defense, so, we don't know that he literally carried it in a bag. Right. <laughs> and we don't it does not appear to have been cash. But beyond that, um, so this is, um, this is lawyer number two. Then, right, they get rid of, uh, Kasowitz and they replace him with the professionals. And the professionals, John Dowd and Ty Cobb, quickly have a meeting on an attorney client matter at a restaurant in the presence of a New York Times reporter sitting at the adjacent table. And within a few days of that, I forget which came first, Ty Cobb emails a 25-year-old reporter in the middle of the night and asks her if she is on drugs. Um, I'm not making this up. And then... And then say, can I have some? Yeah. <laughs> and then... Just didn't a, happen for the record. And then a few days after that gets tricked into an extended exchange with an email prankster. So these are the pros that get brought in. Um, now, John Dowd is now gone. Ty Cobb, by all accounts, is the president is not too happy with him and his mustache um, these days. So we're, we're... Wait, wait. I thought mustaches are in in the White House No, only now. John Bolton's mustache is in. Okay. And there, there you can, can only be, have one mustache. There can be only one big mustache. Um, and so you, you're looking at a situation where... Oh, and then the, the other lawyer is Jay Sekulow, and I remember Jay Sekulow from uh, back when he used to run an organization called uh, the ACLJ, which is not to be confused with the ACLU, which is a uh, religious liberty-oriented uh, Pat Robertson-backed uh, uh, and uh, group that uh, did uh, constitutional First Amendment litigation. I've never known him to be involved in a substantial criminal matter. Uh, and he's the only one standing at this point. He's sort of a solo shop now among the president's outside lawyers. So the answer to your question, Tammy, what's the chance that we're going to end up with a group of people representing the president who are wildly unqualified to do it is 100%. That's what's happened the last year 
and now we've gotten rid of them, and the question is, what's the second group of unqualified people we're going to get to represent it? I just want to say, don't count whoever that is out, because as all law students here know, the greatest story of legal underdogs ever, my cousin Vinny. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he well, could do worse. You never know. So maybe he'll get Joe Pesci to represent. Yeah, he could totally surprise <laughs> him. He could totally surprise him and completely pull it out in the end. As long as somebody on the record says, dead on balls accurate. <laughs> <laughs> What's a ute? <laughs> all right. What's a Russian diplomat doing in Washington? That was a really bad segue, you guys. Oh, Shane, you're out of practice. I am out of practice. I go away to an undisclosed location for a week, and I'm off my segue game. But I have to say, having tried sitting in your chair just once, segues are hard. We did get a tweet about that. Did you see that? Yeah. Somebody somebody (laughs) said they missed my segue. I, I missed your segment. I didn't reply. Man. I just liked it. Um, but I'm glad to be back. So uh, the administration has announced this week that we are expelling 60 Russian diplomats from the United States and closing uh, a Russian facility in Seattle, which was totally not just a place to spy on the Boeing company. Um, it's a consulate. There's lots of people in Seattle who need visas to go to Russia. Um, it, this was taken, obviously, in concert with our uh, British allies, and uh, I think about two dozen European countries now have said that they're going to expel diplomats in some number, not quite up to 60, but obviously it was in response to uh, the poisoning uh, of a Russian uh, ex-double agent uh, and his daughter in England. Um, I want to start with the proposition that it would probably have looked really bad if we didn't expel anyone, and the Brits and our European allies uh, went ahead and took that uh, that response to what I think everyone sees as a unprovoked act of aggression. I think that we talked about this in the podcast a couple weeks ago. The English, the British are not exactly calling it an act of war, but they're calling it an act of unlawful aggression. So tomorrow, let me ask you as, as our, our resident diplomat, what is the, the, is this a practical effect or a symbolic effect, first of all, uh, in the expulsion of this many diplomats? A lot of people have made a big deal of the fact that this is a very large number of people to expel. I think at the, 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 the next uh, biggest chunk that were thrown out or PNG'd were, was during the Reagan administration. Obviously, right. Obama kicked out about three dozen towards the end of his term. But should we be reading these things as symbolic and still important, or do these actually have practical effects, and are they punitive in some way? Um, look, I, I think they do have some practical effects. They're not without effect, but I think that the practical effects are marginal in terms of weighing the, the logic or the, the, the arguments for doing this. Um, it really is about symbolism. And so the fact that the United States was two days later than all of Britain's other allies in making this move, uh, and that the president himself still has had nothing to say about it, uh, to me blunts significantly the symbolic power of this gesture of solidarity. You're right that had we not done it, that would have been a, an even more powerful symbolic statement to the negative. Um, and so it's very important that we did it along with our European allies. Um, and I think it's I think we've heard a number of commentators point out this week that although the president himself has been uh, relentlessly positive about Russia, about Putin, about his relationship with both of those, um, the administration's policy, its formal policy on the books at this point is much tougher than that. Um, after a long, long, long delay, they did implement uh, sanctions that were passed by Congress last summer, some sanctions. They could do more. Uh, they did designate people under Global Magnitsky, um, which is a human rights-related uh, sanctions law. Uh, and they did go ahead in solidarity with the UK and expel these diplomats. Um, but it matters very much that it's not the president saying any of this stuff. And of course, it matters hugely that at the same time that these policies are being rolled out, the president calls President Putin and congratulates him on his reelection. After um, being specifically told in all caps, do not do congratulate. Do not congratulate. And I, you know, look, he doesn't congratulate have Congratulate has a lot of syllables. <laughs> There's no reason why he has to follow the advice given by his National Security Council staff. I don't think it's a scandal that he congratulated when he was told not to congratulate. I think it's a policy scandal that he congratulated. It's the wrong thing to do. It's the wrong thing for American policy. And it's, you know, so I I think that this, to me, 
what this all adds up to is the president basically winking behind the back of the rest of the U.S. government and the American public and the media, winking at Putin and saying, don't worry, I got this. Let, let me ask, I mean, just kind of to push on that a bit, um, it, it is the case that he has not said anything publicly. He hasn't said, you know, a word really of, of condemnation towards Vladimir Putin. Not uh, one, not one word. <clears throat> not one word. But if we look, you named the 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 sort of the punitive steps that we've taken, the putting people on the Magnitsky Act, the <clears throat> the sanctions, though they're not maybe as much as some people would have liked. Uh, there was a uh, uh, sale of I think javelin weapons to Ukraine. That some people have been pushing for that. So there are things that are happening within the apparatus. Uh, that are very much in line with people who want to 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 punish Russia uh, and to push back against Russians or put more than put them on notice to maybe even you know give aid and assistance to to its adversaries. So does the president get credit for signing off on those things because he could have stopped them, uh, or are we giving him too much credit and saying by saying you know uh, uh, yeah it's fine that you went along with him and didn't stop them, but but your your silence speaks volumes and perhaps is even more significant than even all of the steps that we actually have taken that he hasn't tried to stop. Ben, what do you think? I think that the answer to that question almost certainly requires bifurcating the question. I think it, 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 and what I would say is it is only fair to give the Trump administration credit for the things that it has done. And it is only fair to critique and understand uh, what the president himself has and has not done uh, with an awareness of that, but also as an independent good. Presidential speech matters. And, you know, it matters, uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of this example, that Ronald Reagan said Mr. Gorbachev's tear down this wall, right? That it would not have, if the Reagan administration had, had an anti-wall policy, we would not remember that the same way. That's a you know, th th there is something about presidential speech uh, that actually matters. And we can all remember things that George W. Bush said and things that Barack Obama said uh, that are not memorable because they were administration policy. They're memorable because the president said them. And, uh, and for good or ill. And when the president, uh, in the face of serial... Uh, anxieties uh, raised about his relationship with Russia, his campaign's relationship with Russia, his campaign manager, uh, we learned last night, uh, and deputy campaign manager were, during the campaign, in touch with people they knew to be Russian agents, uh, according to Bob Mueller. Um, you know, when, in the face of all of that, in the face of... Uh, um, a long pattern of his conspicuous refusal to say anything uh, negative about Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin goes out of his way to try to kill somebody on the soil of a friendly country, not just any friendly country, but our closest military ally. And the president, in the face of that, chooses to say nothing uh, really conspicuously say nothing, but call him to congratulate him on his sham election. You have to evaluate that as an act that exists independently of whatever presidential, whatever administration policy may be in effect. And look, they've done some good things as a policy matter with respect to Russia. I mean, they even approved, you know, lethal aid to the Ukrainians, um, which, you know, the Obama administration has never done. So I, I think you have to separate the things and evaluate them, evaluate them separately. They've done a lot of, they've done some good stuff on Russia. There's a lot of stuff I wish they would do that they haven't done, but they've done some, they've done some stuff. I don't want to pretend that hasn't happened. The absence of presidential speech remains a glaring feature of Trump's existence as president. You know, I, it's interesting that you say we have to look at them separately because I think the proper way to evaluate this is to understand that, as you said, Shane, 
these policy decisions don't happen without presidential approval. And so what you're evaluating, in fact, is the president essentially saying to his national security team, yes, you may do these things that you argue are important and necessary, but keep me out of it. That is the policy decision that the president made. You may do these things, but keep me out of it. And that's what you have to evaluate. And I think it's that understanding that has led people like John Brennan to say, oh, wow, there must be something really personal going on here. Um, they, the Russians must have something on this guy. Uh, because you can't understand that decision in any other terms. Do you think, I mean, and this is, this is a question I know that some people don't like to be asked because it requires so much speculation, but it seems to me the big, you know, kind of elephant in the room is why is it this way? You know, there are, and people have offered various theories for this. There's the John Brennan sort of theory that the Russians must have something on him. There's this sort of psychoanalytic theory that uh, he's so concerned about the legitimacy of his election that he cannot give one inch on Russia because he thinks that this is the thing that's being used to try to delegitimize the election. Um, obviously, the question of whether there was conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia is an important question and one that will be answered. <clears throat> but I don't want to try to answer the question. But I'm just curious whether you all think, given everything that we've said about the relative pros and cons of the president not speaking, if trying to understand why he is not is an important question, or do we really not need to know that? Well, we ultimately do need to know it in the sense that um, if Vladimir Putin has something on the president, that is a major national security problem that we need to know. Now, I do not assert that. Well, but wait a minute. The president is the chief executive and the protector of the national security. Presumably, he knows the answer to that question. And he is presumably acting in accordance with the information he has. So, you know, do we need to know that? Of yes. course, we'd like to know. No, no, But no. he's the if, guy that we elected. If the president is a compromised figure with respect to the intelligence apparatus of a foreign adversary country, the public is entitled to know that. And uh, that's why we have an investigation or one of the reasons that we have an investigation. But look, just... I, I don't, I don't want to jump to that conclusion because there's a lot of reason to think that it may be something well short of that. This is a man who cannot bring himself to assume that any woman who asserts that she was sexually assaulted, unless she was sexually assaulted by Bill Clinton, is telling the truth. And the reason is that if any woman is telling the truth about it, then he perceives that as a, as, as a threat to the legitimacy of his presidency because there are 23 or whatever the number of women who make an assertion, similar assertion allegations about him. And so his behavior with respect to Russia is not all that different from his behavior with respect to sexual assaults that don't involve him at all. And so I think it's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis that it's, it's in that second category of things that you Identify, and I actually wish that John Brennan would not um, speak in the language of there must be's. I think it's not, you know, it's well ahead of where the evidence is right now. We have an investigation to figure these things out, and I think we shouldn't be we shouldn't be jumping to those conclusions earlier than the ev the evidence may take us there, and we'll go there when it happens. But I I do think there's there's value to not saying more than we know. So speaking of powerful leaders about whom we're asking, what is he thinking? Oh, this is a good segue. Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, a penny for your thoughts, but only a penny. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's report. A penny and all my personal no, it, data. No, it's oh, free. <laughs> Facebook's free and always will be free. He, does, your he, thoughts are he free, wants your Mark. thoughts your thoughts, not his, and he doesn't want to pay for them. He wants to sell them. <laughs> Only I get to sell my thinking in the Washington Post. Um, Zuckerberg has reportedly concluded that he will have to testify before Congress. Um, Danielle, I want to turn to you on this because you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing uh, about what happens on Facebook, how we react to what happens on Facebook. Um, <clears throat> as a first-order question, 
what does he have to accomplish and what does he have to be prepared to ask if he does end up, as it looks like he at least thinks he will have to, uh, going before a congressional panel to talk at the very least about Facebook's manipulation by uh, Russian forces and others during the election? So I think the first order of business is to address what is clearly a breach of trust with users and to somehow make clear that um, Facebook itself is self-regulated in some respects because law, just as a backdrop, just to back up for a second, um, the question of collection is largely unregulated in the United States. And so we are data gluttons um, because it's completely permissible. And we largely don't restrict uses of personal data uh, except in some small sectors of the economy. And so what I think Zuckerberg has to get up there and say is, though I breached your trust here, this is what we're doing to self-regulate. Um, and we're not going to betray the FTC anymore, nor state AGs. And, and this is how we're going to structure our collection, our use, our sharing and disclosure, so that we can honor your expectations. And I think that ultimately has to be his goal, is to reassure users and consumers that he will honor what their expectations are uh, so that he can be understood as being, in some respects, sort of loyal and a fiduciary. Are you confident, just in, I have the others chime on this too, but <clears throat> are you confident that a congressional hearing will give him the opportunity to address that, which I think everyone would agree is an important thing to address, or is this going to be a flaying session? Uh, I mean, <clears throat> one of the things that I've noticed reporting on the entire, you know, Le Faire Russe is that I've never, I never saw a Congress get as exercised as they did about social media companies and the manipulation. And my theory for that was because that was a place where they could actually exert a leverage. They could press on those people. They could squeeze them. They could make their lives miserable. They could hold them to account and terrify them in ways that they can't as easily in the executive branch. So should we expect <clears throat> that a hearing is going to be kind of a high-minded, probing exploration of these really important issues, or is it just going to be kind of, you know, a, a, a punch fest, really? And I think the I – I hope that senators are thinking hard about this, because if they punch too hard, it will reveal just how un or unregulated we are, right? So if they attack him too fiercely, it'll be quite clear that law permits this exploitive data model. Uh, and manipulation, and that there aren't real rules about researching, you know, engaging in research on users, whether it's emotional contagion or the the way in which Facebook experimented with nudging people to vote and others not to vote. Uh, there really aren't hard and fast laws. So I think if they punch too hard, what they'll reveal is that we need them ever more. Senate, don't be dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Congress, House of Representatives, you need to think hard about an omnibus privacy law that's meaningful. So it may backfire if they yeah. are too tough so on it. take the cheap shot. Right? Yeah. So I, I, when I think about this politically, and I think about it in the context of other private sector actors that have ended up in big public scandals and gotten hauled in front of Congress, the model is that the CEO goes, like I'm thinking about the energy companies who got hauled up, you know, about 10 years ago when oil prices were high and they were accused of price gouging. Uh, and price fixing. And the model is that you go up there, you do your mea culpa, and you're proactive about your reform plan, and you lay it all out, and you take your lumps. You expect to get flayed, because members of, and this is an election year, members of Congress need to look like they are holding you accountable. Um, big private sector companies are never, ever popular with the American public, uh, even on a good day. And this is not a good day for Facebook. And so I think there's every political incentive for members to flay him, even if it means like, oh, wow, we have a lot of work to do. We're not regulating. Well, great. That gives them something to show their voters that they're doing. So I don't see how this goes well from, from that perspective. I think the key, the key piece here, which has really not been well discussed, and I'm really curious, Danielle, for your thoughts on this, is the balance between regulation and innovation, okay? So, you know, there have been those saying, well, Facebook should have anticipated that their platform could be used in this abusive way 
and they should have built in, designed in some protections. Um, and Facebook's argument is, look, you know, we're the cutting edge of the new economy and you, we don't know how this stuff is going to evolve. We never expected to have a billion people on our site. And you, if you don't give us the freedom to be naive and try things out and innovate, then it's going to crush the whole tech economy. Um, so how, how should we think about that as a policy problem? Right. Um, so Silicon Valley, of course, was so liberated because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that Ben and I have written about, and in light of the fact that there isn't robust privacy regulation as there is in Europe. But we certainly see in Europe innovation, right? That is, we may not have Facebook and Twitter, right, with all this speech, but data is handled and used and shared and mined in all sorts of interesting ways. And I, I But they're not creating all these cool companies, and we are. But I, I think we can reconcile or strike, we need to strike a better balance between our interest in sort of whole hog innovation and our respect for privacy rights in ways that I think we've struck a better balance or over time uh, in all sorts of industries. And I think we shouldn't be cowed by the idea that we can't do it here. That's the sort of technological determinism argument that makes me crazy, right? That we say, oh, this technology is ever-changing and it's going to be so interesting. Data, Big data is the new oil, right? Like, let's get all excited about this. And we don't realize the cost that we externalize onto our consumers as individuals with data breaches uh, and to our society. But the way in which misinformation spreads so quickly, how we're manipulating individuals, like there are true meaningful costs that are all borne by all of us and not by companies. So maybe I'm not so sad if Mark can't make, you know, the next billion, right? <laughs> uh, so sorry, right? Uh, so so I, I think we need to strike a better balance, though. So I completely agree with that with one caveat, which is that Europe, which everybody holds up as the alternative model where, uh, uh, where privacy is better protected, is actually a disaster. And they do a terrible job with this. And not only do they do a terrible job about it, but they're then sort of evangelical and almost imperialistic about the job that they do with it, kind of insisting that the rest of the world mimic their privacy standards. And I could like go on about this for an hour, which I'm not going to do. But uh, one of the problems is that the alternative privacy models are also terrible. What Can you just give one example of what's terrible? Okay, so Europe actually terribly stifles innovation, and it, there is a reason why none of the major tech companies are based in Europe or, or are in, in origin European countries. Um, and also, the European countries are fanatical about regulating the, the companies uh, and restricting the way the companies use consumer, use and store and collect consumer data but they do nothing about the way their member state governments use data. So uh, in the United States, when we think about privacy, we think about, you know, kind of Facebook and NSA, right? And, and uh, in Europe, they think only about Facebook, and their own member state governments are completely unmoored by the... Um, by the uh, European privacy directives. Um, and so the result is that uh, they regulate companies aggressively, but, but ultimately pretty ineffectively. Facebook's privacy policies in Europe aren't actually materially different than they are in, than the ones in the United States. And they'll tell you that if you ask them, sort of, is Facebook the same product in, in the European Union as it is in the United States? They'll say yes, which means that for all the European Union's uh, uh, emphasis on privacy, it's not actually producing all that different outcomes. And to this day, in most European countries, you cannot ask, you cannot get a serious answer to under what circumstances can the government get your data, because the answer is whenever they want to. And so as a functional matter, Europeans' privacy, are, I don't believe, are better protected and in many ways are much worse protected than American uh, privacy. 
But what they do is they talk about it in a very active and, and aggressive sort of way. And so I think, you know, part of the problem that we have, and I completely agree with Danielle's point that we, we kind of need a different social compact on, on this stuff. Um, but it's not like you can look around the world and say, ah, the social compact in X country is the one that's really doing it right. And, and I think, oh, um, the, the problem is the model, right? So in both Europe and the United States, we adhere to what we call a fair information practice principles. And it's premised on the idea of notice and choice and making choice more meaningful, um, transparency, the ability to um, limit how data is collected and then shared. But the problem is that's a lot about consent. And consumers, if you give them much more information, as we do in Europe, we're also clicking yes, right? Um, what is meaningful in Europe is that it's a real, it's not an on-off switch, so that the choice isn't you don't get to go to the site. It's more meaningful. But nonetheless, because we're caught up in this notion of noticing consent, transparency, you know, accountability, uh, limited use, we, we're not imaginative. Uh, we need to be more imaginative as we think about how to, um, I think, somehow to curtail this, what I call the data collection imperative, right? We over-collect, we under-protect. So we need to just think more off the books about this stuff rather than being so caught up. And so your dissatisfaction, you know, Ben's with the EU is because we're largely operating on a the same model, yep. proceduralist sort of model without substantive restrictions. And it's dissatisfying because no matter how much you get the procedure right, it still leaves you feeling empty, like you didn't eat anything at the meal. All right. Speaking of eating things, we have these burgers cookies I just want to point out in front of us. That <laughs> and scotch. And scotch. And scotch. <laughs> We're going to move on to object lessons now, but I want to point out these wonderful Baltimore objects that we have in front of us. Ben, would you like to share your object first? My object, speaking of social media companies, is Twitter's uh, uh, terms of service, which I'm going to confess I violated over the weekend. And um, I, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry uh, Twitter hasn't <laughs> suspended my account. But I just wanted to flag this for uh, y'all and for listeners because uh, this weekend I got an email from uh, a Nazi um, and it was not a nice email. It was uh, uh, violently anti-Semitic, and it was... Uh, 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 he was a quiet guy, though. I'm sure all the neighbors thought he was a good guy. Yeah, and, <laughs> and uh, he... The neighbors um, on both sides. Um, <laughs> and he was uh, uh, said uh, vile things about uh, all kinds of people, including his girlfriend, um, which he, really, he was just misunderstood, though. Yeah, he just he needed, was probably bullied and needed to share that with me, I guess. Um, and so I did what I do with all such emails, which is that I screenshotted it with his email visible and I tweeted it. And I always tweet this with the same. And if you're listening, Twitter, um, uh, I don't. I'm not really that sorry about this. Um, uh, Hashtag I, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I tweeted it with the sentence, uh, you have no expectation of privacy in sending abuse to strangers. Because I feel like if somebody sends me what they may think is a private uh, correspondence that contains, uh, say, vile misogyny and anti-Semitism and uh, a kind of laced with a kind of sort of threatening tone toward me, it's a little bit nervy to think that I'm going to keep that confidential. I never agreed to. And so my general posture is that you post these things. And then, um, and then if people end up experiencing a certain negative feedback for that sort of behavior, uh, I wouldn't encourage that, certainly. But I don't really spend a lot of time feeling bad about it either. And I learned in response to this particular episode, rather to my surprise, that Twitter rules read as follows. You may not publish or post other people's private information without their express authorization and permission. Definitions of private information may vary depending on local laws. 
And then under a useful little section that says when this applies, it says some examples of private information include, but may not be limited to, private contact or financial information such as non-public personal email addresses. And so um, upon learning that, I had to remove uh, the um, uh, uh, said tweet um, uh, and uh, several others like it, I may add. Uh, and so I just want to point out to Twitter uh, that your policies in this regard serve in this instance when applied uh, mechanically uh, to, prote to protect, uh, you know, real uh, bigots and abusive individuals from exposure of their misconduct. And uh, so I, the policy was never enforced against me, and I, I'm, you know, not saying that I uh, am a victim of these policies, but I am saying that in the future, uh, people who send me highly abusive uh, material will receive a certain degree of protection uh, from uh, from this Twitter policy, and I suspect I'm not the only one who may be inhibited from airing such things in the future as a result of them. Uh, Danielle, do you have an object? I do. So I'm reading Woody Harzog's uh, Privacy's Blueprint, and I recommend it to all of your listeners and to my students. Uh, <laughs> it's all about how architecture matters, right? That that our architecture of our systems determines our privacy rights, and, and it couldn't be more timely, the book. So uh, I, maybe we'll give Zuckerberg a copy. We should send it to him. Nice. Very nice. Tamara. Wow. You know, I really feel like whatever I had prepared, my object should be these amazing burgers cookies. <laughs> because Keep back to the burger cookies. Yeah, I, I burgers, just, sorry. I can't help it, but burgers cookies are like the most Baltimore thing ever. And although some people snot on them saying that they're basically tablespoonfuls of cake batter with a lot of icing on top. I think yeah. they're Isn't that the amazing. Point? <laughs> <laughs> and and right, and that is the point, right? They are delivery vehicles for chocolate so ice. Baltimore is John Waters. Um, but just briefly, I, my my object is a new book uh, that is coming out in about a week and a half from one of my favorite people in the world, uh, Madeline Albright. Uh, it's it's a book called Fascism: A Warning. So you can guess what it's about. And of course, this is in the context of a bunch of other books along similar themes that have come out in recent months from Yasha Munk, from David Frum, and others. Um, but Madeline, uh, when she announced uh, the book today, wrote on Twitter um, something that I think is worth keeping in mind, which is, this book is personal. As a child, I fled the Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia. After the war, communists drove my family into exile. Later, as UN ambassador and secretary of state, I confronted dictators. Since then, I've stayed involved in the fight for democracy. I know what the stakes are, and I'm determined to use my voice to warn against the dangers to freedom that we see. In the face of fascism or fascist tendencies, silence isn't a responsible option. And I think there are probably few... Um, retired diplomats of her age and stage of life who have been as consistent uh, spokespeople and defenders of democracy as Madeline, and uh, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. Great. So my object is uh, I was at South by Southwest a couple of weeks ago and picked up this delightful little card advertising something called flashdrivesforfreedom.org. Wait, this is just a humble brag that you went to South by Southwest. Yeah. Maybe, so. Come on. Uh, that's my object. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, go and, ahead. Uh, no, I think it's important to know like where this was handed out. I mean, at this fabulous elite conference. Um, <laughs> that you just happened to be invited to. It was really nice. Very expensive. Um, so no, this is being put on by the Human Rights Foundation. And what this is, I find this just like, well, I find this like, absolutely delightful. If you send them to this um, address in Palo Alto, Flash Drives for Freedom, you send them flash drives, and they fill it up with content from the outside world and then smuggle it into North Korea. Ooh. And it's set on the card with enough drives we can free minds from Kim Jong-un's propaganda machine. So I love this idea that people are saying, donate your thumb drives. We'll stick all this Western content. We'll put it on. And it comes with a little sticker, which is Kim Jong-un's face with a USB port with his, where his mouth is. And you can put it over your USB port. 
Like Isn't that. that cute? Yeah. I think that's I think it's just delightful. It's charming. So not advocating for it because you know I, I'm a reporter. We don't advocate. But flashdrivesforfreedom.org. Check it out. You too. You don't have to go to South by Southwest to get a Kim Jong Un sticker <laughs> for your USB port. Um, all right. So we're going to take some questions from the audience now or criticisms and tell us what you hate about this podcast. But uh, please uh, tell us what you're thinking. Uh, ask us some questions. We will do our best to try and provide some enlightening, if at the very least, humorous answers. And if you don't like burgers, cookies, I don't want to know. What are they saying? Yes, like? go ahead. Great question. What do we think of uh, Kim Jong-un meeting with Xi Jinping? And I will note that he came into Beijing on a bulletproof train, yeah, the, the, which, if it's anything like the one that his father used, is filled with uh, French wine, lobster, and um, conductor ladies, which are apparently people who serenade him on the way in. Just saying, the guy can travel in style. I'm getting an image of Tony Stark's plane in the first Iron Man movie, right? With Only it moves like really slow. It moves like 37 <laughs> miles an hour because it's full of armor plating and lobster. <laughs> So, uh, but what do we think about that? What do we? What do you make of the meeting? It's good. Um, she is the only person in the world who has serious influence over him, uh, at least externally. Uh, Chinese interests are, uh, with respect to North Korea, corrupt as hell, but ultimately pushing in the right direction, which is that they want this horrible regime to survive. Um, but that's the right direction? No, no, no. That's the corrupt as hell direction. Oh, okay. But they are very concerned about the possibility of conflict. And so they want to push it in a direction that, A, it can survive, and, B, it can avoid conflict, which is to say uh, they they want it to moderate. And so direct pressure from the Chinese is a good thing. And that's presumably what happened at this meeting. It presumably wasn't a, um, you know, a, 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 a lobster fest. Um, and, um, and so I, th- I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a good thing that, that they are having those conversations. And, um, and we should have no illusions about, you know, what the Chinese role in this, which is that they're ultimately the protectors of the worst regime in the world. Um, and the worst regime in the world in many, many, many decades. Um, but to the extent that they can play a role in putting that regime in a modestly more cooperative posture, posture in its relations with the rest of the world, that is a constructive thing. Yeah, I, I guess I'm a little more skeptical than that. And God, I thought that was pretty skeptical. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there's just, I, I'm not sure we have a lot of evidence that what happened in this meeting was Chinese pressure on Kim Jong-un to, to come to the table in a flexible frame of mind. Um, I, I think that what we saw is a half-assed, barely confirmed invitation to a summit conveyed to Trump indirectly, and Trump reacted with such alacrity, jumping on this, declaring it a huge success, uh, trumpeting it, that if I were Xi Jinping, I would have said, oh, man, we can get away with almost anything with this guy. And so I imagine that this meeting was much more cooking up how little they have to sell to the Americans uh, for Trump to declare victory, release the sanctions pressure, and go away. Um, so I, I actually see this as a pretty negative signal, not to mention that, okay, at least these guys are having high-level conversations to prepare for this U.S.-North Korean conversation. There's no evidence that our government is doing the same. Other questions? All right, the Online Sex Trafficking well, Act. Well, Danielle just had an article on Lawfare about that today. So that was a planted question, Quinta. wasn't it? No, and Jason was my student, but now is out in practice. So I oh, did wow. not, it's like no plant, right, at all. Uh, so Quinta and I uh, wrote a post on Lawfare uh, responding to the, uh, it, what it is, so just to back up and tell everyone, it is creating an um, Section 230, my, my civil procedure students even know this, the Communications Decency Act of 1996 provides a safe harbor for platforms, for user, mostly for user-generated content, um, with some few exceptions, including the Electronic Communications Privacy Act and intellectual property, 
um, what Congress is aiming to do is create another exception for the federal criminal um, sex trafficking law and, and what it's going to catch in its net are advertisers that knowingly facilitate sex trafficking. Now, of course, uh, civil libertarians are arguing that it's the end of the Internet as we know it. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, advocates for, for um, you, you know, folks who have been trafficked are all in favor. But it's a poorly drafted law. And I think ultimately a piecemeal approach uh, is the wrong approach. And so Ben and I have, have argued for a more one that insists that platforms, they're mature enough now, that insists that they act reasonably in the face of illegality. Um, so I, I'm not a fan of FOSTA because I think it's both, it's too many cooks in the kitchen. It's not a terrific statute. It's confusing. So Quinta and I wrote about how dissatisfying it is. But also it's shocking that we're even at this moment where mm -hmm. tech companies actually are so cowed that they've bought into this. They, they think it's okay. The Internet Association provided very little opposite, embraced it towards the end. Um, and, and ultimately we're left with not a terrific exemption. Um, and not the kind of, I think, approach that would uh, really help address not just sex trafficking, but all sorts of abuse that platforms should be responsible, acting responsibly in the face of knowing about. Also, FOSTA, terrible acronym. Damn, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, given the, like the circumlocutions that members of Congress go through in naming their bills, come on, guys. Can't like, you, you do got to do better than, better than FOSTA. Makes me think of Fanta. Or Shasta. Yeah. <laughs> it also it also vaguely it's the sounds diet it's coke coke of sex exploitation. It, it, it vaguely sounds like a drug, you know. Yeah. He prescribed Fasta for for the. I don't, know, like, I don't know what it's yeah. treats. Uh, we have time for one more question. I think one more. Somebody has a burning question. You know, you want to ask it. I love this question. So who will get to question the president first, <laughs> Stormy Daniels or Robert Mueller, given that she has filed a motion to depose the president? There is no chance in the world that Stormy Daniels will get through this litigation to uh, depose the president because uh, the costs of that deposition to the president are way higher than the costs of capitulating in the litigation and letting Stormy Daniels on. off the hook for her uh, for her violations of the NDA if she in fact violated it. And so the 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 the, the president will cap will capitulate before he will let her uh, do that deposition. But isn't there president? Well, you see, he'll, he'll capitulate you before then. You say, yeah. Oh, I see. So, 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 so there is there is obviously precedent for this for the president to sit down in a sexual harassment lawsuit. And and I think, I think if you examine that precedent as the president's lawyer, you would settle almost any case before it came to that. It didn't turn out so well for him, <laughs> right. did it? Like, like letting that case go to deposition while you were having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, really bad idea. And lying during the deposition well, turned out to be really a really bad idea. Also a bad idea, but... As a matter of lawyering, you shouldn't have let it, I mean, whether it was wrong of Clinton's lawyers to do that, it would certainly be wrong after that with a much more mercurial and and uh, truth-deficient client than Bill Clinton, which is, by the way, saying something, um, to, to let... Uh, but Donald doesn't that Trump. just go back to our earlier conversations about Donald Trump and his lawyers? I actually think that makes the case that he might go get deposed in well, this trial. Well, so the, the harder question is whether uh, whether and when Bob Mueller will actually get that interview, and and that that I think uh, I think that interview will happen, um, and it'll happen for two reasons. One is that the president wants to do it, and the second uh, and more important reason is that, you know, while it is an open question of law as to whether he can be compelled to do it, ultimately the better argument is that he can, and the factual presentation in this case would be uh, highly unsympathetic to the president, which is to say, um, uh, if you actually force Bob Mueller to issue the subpoena, I think most district courts... Uh, judges in uh, whichever jurisdiction, either the District of Columbia or or uh, the Eastern District of Virginia, most district courts would uh, would 
most district judges would allow that, and I think most panels of the D.C. Circuit or the Fourth Circuit would probably uh, side with the special counsel. So if you're the president, you'd be relying in factually unfavorable situations on there being five justices for the idea that even after U.S. v. Nixon, you can, can resist this subpoena for, for testimony. I think that's unlikely. And so I think when you combine the fact that the president wants to do it with the fact that he's probably would lose and ultimately lose a litigation, which is the worst possible outcome for him, because then he has to walk into a grand jury without his lawyer, um, I think at the end of the day, some interview probably takes place. I think the real question is what the circumstances of that interview are. I just want to say that, oh, do you have a comment too? I just—I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast, but I know we've talked about it off podcast. That this sneaking suspicion that I began to have in the in, in the midst of the Me Too moment of whether the thing that actually became the bigger political problem for Donald Trump wasn't Russia and possible conspiracy, but was in fact uh, his sexual history and his treatment of women. And in, in this, in, I don't know if that is the path that we are set on now that Stormy Daniels is pursuing this deposition, uh, but boy, it sure introduces an interesting new element into that part of the narrative. So here, here's a, here's a question. Hear the Greek so chorus, a, a, right? a porn star went on 60 Minutes uh, the other day and um, made a set of allegations that the White House denied. Uh, there are, I would guess, uh, 40 people in the room. How many believe the White House has more credibility in its denial than the porn star has uh, in the allegations? Okay. Not a single person raised that. And that time we're telling the truth. Actually, no one raised their hand. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have something to say, too? No? Okay. Well, then we're at the end of the podcast, you guys. Wow. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Law. We made it through. We made it through. We We survived. A production of Lawfare. You can find our show page. I don't know where you can find our show page, Ben. Where can you find our show page? You can still find it at SpaghettiOnTheWall.com because I haven't moved it over to Lawfare (laughs) yet. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, as I'm sure everyone here is going to go do right now and leave a five-star rating and review, we would really appreciate that. It really helps us out. And And all of their reviews are going to say... Danielle Zitron is amazing. They should have her on all the time. Every week. Come to Baltimore. <laughs> Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Ty Cobb and The Last Mustache Standing. <laughs> oh, Ooh, yeah. nice. That would be a kick-ass band. When, yeah. Ty, when Ty Cobb gets fired, I'm just saying this now, I'm going to tweet John Bolton's mustache to Ty Cobb's mustache. There can be only one. <laughs> just like there can be only one Sophia Yan, who would totally never play in a band with Ty Cobb or John Bolton, but she would play in a band called The Last Mustache Standing. I think, you know. She might have some quibbles about the name. Uh, on behalf of my good friends, Benjamin Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Daniel Citron, thank you to all of you out here in the audience at the University of Maryland Law School, the Cary School of Law, and your local chapter of the American Constitution Society. Give yourself a hand. I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 